you. Good morning, everyone. My, my name is DJ Martin. I'm the church pastor at Drexel Hill Church. Before, um, before I was at Drexel Hill Church, I've been there for about a year and a half now. I was at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Lebanon, and I know you've had some interaction uh, recently with some of the pastors and uh, staff members at, at Cornerstone. So I was at Cornerstone for a long time. And uh, you might not know me, but I know you well, and I love you. And I'm very thankful to be here. I've been praying at Parker Ford in this sanctuary and for uh, this church going back now seven years or so. I've actually led worship here a number of years ago, but this is my first time teaching. And so it's really good to be with you this morning. And again, I love you and I'm thankful to have this time. So thank you for the welcome and the invitation here. And I'm excited to dig into God's word together. Before we do that, I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in uh, back into the series I think that you've been in, which is Expect the Unexpected. And this morning we're looking at the unexpected king of Jesus and specifically the unexpected salvation that he gave. So let's pray. Jesus, you're amazing. I woke up this morning with the, uh, the hymn, It Is Well, in my head specifically, the verse where it says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. So as we enter your word this morning, we recognize the fact that we carry the burden of sin, God, but you've taken it. And so we bear it no more. So when we engage your word, we don't do so from a standpoint of lacking something, trying to earn your love. We engage your word this morning knowing that you have loved us and cleansed us and taken our sin. And it is good It is so good to be together, and it is so good to engage your word, Father. We love you. We ask that you would actually be the one that leads us this morning. I don't have much of worth to say, but you have everything to say, God. And so we pray that it would be you yourself, through the Holy Spirit, that would lead us this morning. And like Psalm 103, we ask that you would be blessed this morning, God, that the Lord would be blessed this morning. We also pray for our brothers and sisters across this land. We've got a lot of brothers and sisters who are worshiping you this morning. We pray for the regional church this morning in Drexel Hill at Cornerstone. Other nets or churches we're connected to. God, we pray that you would bless your church and build your kingdom. And when we get to visit one another and share words with one another and worship with one another, it's a testament to how good and big and powerful your family is, God. We celebrate you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm an MK, missionary kid. I grew up in uh, the Philippines and in St. Louis, so I've traveled a lot. And one of my favorite things about the church or about the kingdom of God is that when you meet someone for the first time who's a believer, your family, right? Like, even though it's the first time you meet them, your family. It's a brother, it's a sister, it's a father, it's a mother. And so I'm so glad to be among family this morning, whether or not we've met before. Expect the unexpected. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be all over the place this morning. That's kind of how my mind works. I'm an artist at heart, so I'm really messy. If you see my desk, it's messy, but like Einstein, hopefully there's some brilliance in there. I doubt it. No, so I'm going to be a little bit all over the place this morning, but we're going to be circling around this concept of of the unexpected king. Jesus came to be king, but he did it in such a way that it was so unexpected. Now, 
Can we get the next slide? No? Is it paused? All right. We were having technical trouble all morning trying to get this up, so we're just going to set this aside and let God's word speak for itself. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Is it up now? Hey! All right, thank you, Jesus. While you're turning... When God set up the kingdom of Israel, he set up three main offices of governance by which leaders of Israel were supposed to represent his kingdom. The three main offices of governance that God set up are fairly well known, and they are prophet, priest, and king. So the prophet spoke God's words to the people, And we know that Jesus is the word made flesh and that he reveals the deepest revelations of the character and heart of God. When we think about prophecy, the first thing we tend to think about is future telling, right? So if someone speaks a prophetic word, they're speaking into the future. But that's actually not what prophecy is. Sometimes God chooses to include things about the future in a word of prophecy. But the core of prophecy is actually something different than talking about the future. And where God defines this is in Revelation chapter 19. This is where the bride of Christ, the church, you and I, have the feast with the bridegroom, Jesus. And he adorns his church in the beautiful garments of white, which he says are the good works of his saints. And then John The Apostle John, who's receiving this revelation, is so overwhelmed that what happens? Do you remember? He falls down and he worships the angel that's showing him this stuff. So the Apostle John, the one who walks with Jesus, the one who loves Jesus so intimately, falls down, he's overwhelmed, and he starts worshiping an angel. And the angel says, get up. I'm a servant just like you are. You must not do this. And then the angel says this profound thing. He says, for the testimony of of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is a new definition of prophecy for many of us. Because when we think of prophecy, we think about the future. But the angel says, who's speaking the word of God, prophecy isn't about the future, John. It's about Jesus. Who does Jesus say is the greatest prophet who ever lived? You shout it out. John the Baptist. What did John say about the future? He said almost nothing about the future. And what little he did say about the future was fulfilled like five minutes later. Someone's coming after me. I'm not even willing to, uh, not even able to stoop down and tie his shoes, right? Oh, look, there he is. That's the greatest prophet ever. But what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God. There's Jesus. He's the one who takes away our sins. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, the next chapter, we're not going to look at it, the one after the one we're going to be in a little bit this morning. God says, Moses, I'm going to raise up from among your brothers a prophet like you. 
And then Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 7, John chapter 6, a number of places in the New Testament, the apostles affirm that who is the prophet that God raises up like Moses? You shout it out. I like to interact. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The spirit of, of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That means that every single thing that Jesus did was prophetic. So when he ate, it was prophecy. When he spoke, it was prophecy. When he revealed his character, it was prophecy for it was all a true representation of who he was. The second office that God set up was the office of priesthood. And the priests offered sacrifices and prayers and praises to God on behalf of the people. We know that Jesus is the great high priest who has offered the final and complete sacrifice for the people of God. And this is a strange one that Jesus is a priest because what lineage, what tribe was Jesus a part of? Judah. What tribe were priests a part of? Levi, right? And the, the writer of Hebrews 7, he, he says, now we know that Jesus is not a priest according to the law because there has never been a priest who's been a priest out of the tribe of Judah. Every priest has always been a priest out of the tribe of Levi. And then he says this profound thing. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus became high priest by the power of an indestructible life. It's a very interesting statement. Jesus became high priest by the power of an indestructible life. I really like doing redefinitions. So the redefinition of prophecy is that it's not future telling. It's the testimony of Jesus. Here's the redefinition for priestly ministry for us this morning, I think. Priestly ministry is not about sacrifice. It's about obedience. The, the core of priestly ministry is obedience. What does the prophet Samuel say to Saul? To obey is better than sacrifice. If you had obeyed, there would be no need for sacrifice. The only reason there's a need for sacrifice is because of disobedience. True priestly ministry is obedience. The truest form of priestly ministry is walking obediently with God. Jesus became the great high priest by the power of an indestructible life. Well, what's an indestructible life? A sinless life. A life of perfect obedience and submission to the will of the Father. So Jesus came to redeem the prophetic office that had fallen. He came to redeem the priestly office that had fallen. He also came to redeem the kingly office that had been broken and fallen. The kings ruled over Israel as, they were, as the representative of God's heavenly government. Jesus rules as king with the complete and perfect representation of the government of God. These three offices, prophet, priest, and king, the first time they show up in the Bible is not when God sets them up in the kingdom of Israel. They actually show up in the garden. These are the same three roles that God had designed for Adam and Eve to live in with him. The original design of Adam and Eve was to live as prophets, priests and kings, as prophets because they had uninhibited conversation with God and were able to communicate the knowledge of God to creation. What does Paul write in Romans 8? He says, all of creation is longing with expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, when they walk through the garden, Adam's naming the animals. 
He's pruning the garden. Anytime that Adam is interacting with creation, creation designed by God says, oh, there's the image and likeness of God. Creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. That's what prophecy is all about because the prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So when an animal or creation or another person saw Adam, what they were supposed to see actually was God. Was to see a representation, an arrow pointing straight to heaven and saying this is what God is like. This is who he is. He cares, he names, he loves. As priests, they offered sacrifices in the garden to God through their work in the earth, specifically through their obedience. And as kings, they were to exercise dominion over the earth, reflecting the governance of heaven, and that's the the well-known dominion mandate that God gives. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion in the earth. So those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, we actually see them in the garden at the very beginning. And when, when sin enters the world, People lose the ability to operate with authority as prophets, priests, and kings. And God resets, he reestablishes those same offices in the kingdom of Israel. But what happens? There's wicked prophets, and there's unjust kings, and there's priests who are completely concerned with themselves. Jesus, the Messiah, he comes and he perfectly fulfills each of these things, prophet, priest, and king. He is the prophet like Moses. He's a priest, not in the order of Aaron. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. Today I've begotten you. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. David prophesies this about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is where we'll jump into the text. This is a really interesting passage to me. I love this passage. Because this is a long time before Israel sets up kings. This is hundreds of years before the kingdom of Israel has a king. And God just calls it. He just totally names it. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is getting ready to die. The people have gone through their wilderness wanderings for 40 years. They've come out of slavery. The whole generation that rejected God has died in the wilderness. And finally, God and Moses specifically through the word of God, is prepping the people to finally enter into the promised land and have dominion and have authority and set up the kingdom of Israel, which is supposed to be the representation of God's kingdom of heaven in the land of Israel. And God says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me Like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Pause there. This should remind you of a story. It should remind you of a story that's coming. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 7 After the book of Judges, Samuel is the final 
He's the final um, judge of the, the people of Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel has grown old. And he's getting ready to pass his authority, his mantle, on to his sons. But there's a problem because his sons are corrupt. They're not like their dad. And so the elders of Israel are looking around. And they don't want to go back into the cycle that they've been going through in the book of Judges. And so they come to Samuel and they say, what do they say to Samuel? We want a, we want a king. We want a king. And, and they specifically say, we want a king like the nations around us. Just like the nations around us, we want a king. God calls this hundreds of years before. He says, when you go into the land, this is what's going to happen. You're going to say, let us set a king over ourselves like the nations around us. But God takes it a step further because he says, when you say that, go ahead and do it. You may indeed do this because this is actually for me. I'm setting this up. And then he lists a number of qualifications. The first is that the king must be from among the brothers. Must be an Israelite king. The second is he must not return to Egypt to acquire horses or chariots or military help, which is an interesting one. Then he goes on to say, he shall not acquire for himself many wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now what's going to happen if you know the story of the kings of Israel, tragically, is all of these things are going to happen. Pretty soon, when the kingdom of Israel falls into military trouble, what are the kings going to do? They're going to go to Egypt and try to get help from Pharaoh. God is very adamant. Do not return that way. Don't go back to Egypt. When God led the people out of slavery in the book of Exodus, and he was leading them towards freedom in the promised land, when the going got tough, what did the people specifically grumble and say? They say, why did you take us out of Egypt? It was so much better there. Let us go back there instead of starving here in the desert. There's a longing to return to slavery. There's a longing to return to captivity. There's a longing to return to the very thing that God had led them out of. Blinders come on and there's the inability to see for the joy set before them what was coming, despite the hunger. Jesus, when he invites people out of slavery into freedom, he makes no bones about how difficult it is. If you want to be a part of this, if you want to follow me, you have to deny everything that you've defined yourself by and said is valuable. All the relationships that you've said are most important, all of those things, you deny them. You take up your cross and you follow me. God's heart has always been to lead out of slavery and into freedom. And in our fallenness, when the going gets rough, our temptation is always to say, take me back to slavery. It's easier than to walk through this time of hunger or time of frustration or time of hurt. God says, when you set up a king, he must not in his heart, when the going gets rough, look back and say, that was better. I'll take a, I'll take a portion of that slavery 
in order to not face this difficulty. Secondly, he must not acquire for himself many wives. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I love this phrase. I used to be scared of it. Now I love it. It says, the Lord your God is a jealous God. The jealousy of God is so good. I've taught on this at Drexel Hill a number of times, and there's always this like squirming in the seats and this very uncomfortable feeling because we don't like the word jealousy. But I have a question for you. If God were not jealous, would he have saved you? If God were not jealous for you, would he have given his son for you? God is a jealous God. The first verse of Nahum says, the Lord your God is jealous. You must have no other gods besides me. God's relationship with his people is the picture of marriage. Paul says, I forget the exact verse. If you know it, you can yell it out. But Paul says, right, in heaven there's not going to be marriage anymore. Because marriage is just a reflection of the truest relationship of God and his bride. God is a jealous God for our love. And so he says, when a king is on the throne, he must not have many wives because he's got to look like me. Which means his heart is for one bride. It's a reflection of my government. His heart is for one. He must be a jealous lover, like I am a jealous lover. Saul, to his credit, whom God rejects, as far as we know, did not acquire many wives for himself. But David, the man who had a heart after God, was the thorn in his flesh. He starts marrying all of these women, and lust leads him into idolatry and adultery. And Solomon takes that to a whole new level. Because David's son Solomon is married to many, 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 many women. And all of these concubines. And he actually starts to marry foreign princesses. And what happens at the end of Solomon's life? They literally lead him into idolatry. And so at the end of his life, this man who was supposed to be the wisest man who ever lived, he's falling on his knees and he's worshiping idols because he's given his heart to a place it does not belong. The Lord his God was a jealous God. Must not acquire for himself excessive silver or gold either, and we know that that happens. This next verse just blows my mind. I hope it blows yours. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. I'm not a nerd in almost any way except when it comes to history. I'm a little bit nerdy when it comes to history. I spent my childhood uh, consuming biographies and weird books like Strange and Interesting Facts of the Civil War. That was how I spent a lot of my free time as a kid was reading history. I love history. And if there's one thing that's true across all of history, no matter where in the world, the first thing that a king does when he comes to power is consolidate that power. The first thing that a king does when he sits on his throne is eliminate his enemies. Anyone who poses a threat to his kingdom, he goes after and either throws them in jail, 
kills them, or exiles them. This is anywhere in the world throughout all of history. When a new king with absolute authority comes to the throne, he eliminates his enemies. God says, when a new king comes and sits on my throne, the first thing that he is to do is to sit down and make a copy of my law, a copy of my word. One of my closest friends decided he was going to write through the Bible, like literally have journals, and each morning he would open the Bible to whichever part he was in, starting with Genesis 1-1, and he would copy verse by verse in his journals. Now, he's been doing this for a number of years, and every once in a while I check on him, and let me tell you, it takes a long time. The first assignment of the king of Israel is to put the law in front of him to sit down and copy it. How different. How unusual. God says, I'll take care of consolidating your power. I'll take care of your enemies. Let me handle all of that stuff that's mine anyways. My king is someone who sits down and makes himself obsessed and consumed with my word. What's the first thing that the Apostle John says about Jesus? In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is unlike any king. Because when he sat on his throne, he didn't worry about his power. He didn't worry about his authority. He didn't worry about swords or horses. He didn't worry about how many people were with him. When he sat down on his throne, what he was concerned about was what dad was saying. There is nothing, he says, Jesus says, there's nothing that I say that the Father doesn't say. There is nothing that I do that the Father doesn't do. I am consumed with the will and the word of God. God says, my king, when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. David, a man after God's heart, Of all the kings before Jesus, the one whom God says Jesus sits on the throne of David, he's the one who makes himself most consumed by the word of God. And that has a lot to do with his heart being after God, right? Because my favorite chapter in the Bible is Psalm 27. And in Psalm 27, David says, there's one thing that I want. That I might live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Meditating on his ways. Thinking about him talking to him. And it shall be with him, that's the word of God, the law, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the, le- or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. When a king, when someone in authority is consumed by their own authority, consolidating their own power, the first thing that happens is their heart is lifted above their brothers. 
because they're concerned about themselves. They're concerned about getting what's coming to them, making sure that they get their inheritance. We all have experienced this in different realms, whether it's at work or with a teacher at school or someone who's power tripping. We've all been tempted to do this, and we've all done this at times. Our hearts have been lifted above our brothers and sisters. God says, if you're about my word, if you're consumed by my word, learn to fear me. Here's a spiritual principle that God's been teaching me for a while that I'd like to share with you this morning. You worship what you fear. Whatever you're afraid of, you will worship. And that's why God says, do not fear anything but me. Over and over again, he says, fear me. Fear the Lord your God. Fear me. Fear me. But then he twists it because he says, how many times does he say, do not be afraid, for I am with you. So there's this tension at all times. He's saying, fear the Lord your God. But he's also saying, do not fear, for I am with you. What you fear, you worship. Because what you are afraid of will consume your thoughts. It will consume your money. It will consume your time. It will consume your action. And it will consume your relationships. You worship what you fear. Fear the Lord so that you worship him. So a question for you is what what are you afraid of? What do you fear? If you're afraid of politics and this country going down, if you're afraid of any anything, fear of man, anything other than God, you're gonna worship that thing. It's an idol. My king, God says, he can't have his heart lifted above his brothers and sisters. Sounds an awfully lot like Jesus. Matthew twenty is when James and John's mother she comes to Jesus and she says, hey, I'd like when you set up this kingdom we're expecting you to set up, I want one son to sit at your right hand and one, hand, one son to sit at your left hand. And Jesus says to James and John, you have no idea what you're asking for. Are you able to drink this cup? And they're like, oh yeah, we can drink it. We can do this. We're excited. Jesus says, you will drink the cup. But who sits at my right and left, that's for God to say, that's for the Father to say. And then the other disciples hear about this and obviously they're upset. You'd be, you'd be upset. I'd be upset if I were in that situation. How dare you? Who do you think you are, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They thought they were waiting for a king who was going to kick the Romans out. They thought they were, that God was going to send a Messiah that would exercise and lord power over those around him. God says, look at my word. That's never what I've promised, and that's never what I've wanted. Among you, it will not be like this. The Son of Man, God himself, did not come to be served. He did not come to consolidate power, to establish an earthly kingdom. He did not come to have the biggest following. He came to give his life as a ransom for as many as would receive it. 
think this is mentioned in the bulletin. This, is, this verse might be referenced in the bulletin. This is one of the Christmas verses we go to all the time. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. Isaiah prophesies, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here's the key thought. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Let me say that again. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and on his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'm going to skip ahead here. I like redefinitions. I've given a redefinition for prophecy. I've given a redefinition for priestly ministry. Here's the redefinition for king for the morning. We, we think of kingdom as, you know, an earthly realm. Jesus says a lot of things about the kingdom and sometimes they're difficult to understand. The kingdom's like a mustard seed. What? The kingdom's like a treasure buried in a field. Okay? The kingdom's like a coin that was lost and then found again. What he says all the time is the kingdom is here. It's at hand. Here's the redefinition for us. This has been very helpful for me. What is the kingdom? It is the person of Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom. Where is the kingdom? Wherever the king is. Wherever the king is kinging, in Hebrew, the, the letters for both the noun king and the action of ruling are the same. It's the same word, malak malak. The king kings. What is the kingdom? It is the person of Jesus. Where is the kingdom? Wherever he is. Where is Jesus? Wherever his people are. What does he call your body if you belong to him? A temple. The kingdom is at hand, Jesus says, because I'm here. I'm the kingdom. And where is the kingdom? Wherever anyone has a relationship with Jesus is where the kingdom is. Remember what Isaiah said just a few verses ago that we looked at? Of the increase of his governance and of his peace, it will never stop. Increasing from, from the moment of its conception to the end of the ages, his government and his peace will never stop increasing. Where does the kingdom start? In a manger. That's the kingdom of God. In a manger. Who's there to see it? A couple of clueless parents? Some animals? Some shepherds who are nobodies? Wander in? The kingdom of God is a baby in a manger. And from that moment in the manger, the kingdom of God has never once stopped increasing in governance or in peace. Shalom. That comes with it. Because wherever Jesus goes, his kingdom gets bigger. One of the repeated statements in scripture from the beginning to the end of scripture is the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. How will it be filled with the glory of the Lord? 
by his people. We think of glory as this ethereal, like the earth's going to be bright everywhere. The earth is going to be filled with people who have a relationship with Jesus. From that moment in the manger, the, the governance of Jesus has never for a moment stopped increasing. Because whenever anyone accepts him as Lord and Savior and king of their life, his kingdom grows. His governance grows. And his shalom grows. Jesus is a king unlike any other king. He is the word become flesh. He is the king who came to serve rather than be served. He is a king whose kingdom is based in relationship, not in territory. And as his glory bearers, his image bearers, relationship with Christ, any time that we have any interaction with anyone, (laughs) we are representing the kingdom of God. You are the kingdom. You're the kingdom because the king is in you. We're the kingdom of God. This is unexpected. This is something very different than how we think of power, how we think of politics, how we think of roles and dominion. And yet this is the way that God has been hinting and pushing and advancing his kingdom forward for many, many ages into the one to come. Let's pray and thank God for his kingdom. And then we're going to sing after that. Okay. Jesus, thank you for being our king and for being our king in the way that you are our king. You don't lord it over us, Philippians 2. You are humble. You did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped. You poured out your life to become a ransom for many, among whom we are counted Jesus, thank you for your kingdom. Teach us what it means to bear your glory. Teach us what it means to be your kingdom. Teach us what it means that your kingdom is about your person and about relationship with you. Not about politics, not about power struggles, not about all the silly things that we think it's about. Your kingdom is about you. I think we're tempted to look around us and think how dark the world is and be depressed and despair and to dread, which means to project fear into the future because of the brokenness and the darkness of this world. But many of us are going to celebrate Christmas Eve with a candle lighting service. And Father, that picture of just your light being passed and how brightly your light shines in the darkness. Teach us that lesson. The darker the world gets, the brighter the light of Christ shines, so be encouraged, brothers and sisters, because the light of Christ is shining brighter than it's ever shown before.
Jesus, teach us these things and teach us how to walk with you as your sons, as your servants, and as part of your kingdom. We love you and pray these things in the name of our king. Amen.